If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the July 14th edition of I Am, Are You? The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Uh, it's running out loud since 1974, making this our 40th year on the air. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Steve Pride. Hi, Steve. Steve, Hi, changed Abby. seats on you've changed seats on me. I want to be closer to you. Okay. I'm close to you. Well, I, I, it's very intimate having you sitting right next to me. So anyway, without Fest in full swing, we are still in movie mode tonight, starting with a scary movie called Crazy Bitches. Hey there. <laughs> and we'll talk to the film's writer, director, and one of the stars. And I talked to the folks behind one of my favorite films at the festival. Not that Crazy Bitches wasn't, because it was, but I'm talking about Tiger Orange. And since a documentary about gay Republican 2012 presidential candidate Fred Carger is hitting the multiplex this week, we'll talk to the man himself, Fred Carger. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Wendell Jones. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending July 12, 2014. There have been virtually weekly reports about the deteriorating situation for sexual minorities in Uganda. Several Western governments began withdrawing non-humanitarian aid after President Yoweri Museveni signed the East African nation's draconian anti-homosexuality law in February. It punishes aggravated homosexuality with up to life in prison, makes public advocacy for LGBT rights a crime, and requires citizens to report suspected homosexuals to the police. Museveni called being forced to defend LGBT rights in exchange for financial aid a sinful requirement. He blamed the lost revenue for having to raise taxes and cut sales tax exemptions for food and even for water. New taxes are also reportedly being proposed on fuel, sugar, and mobile money transactions. Equality activists say they fear being targeted for more violence by Ugandans who blame them for the tax increases in an impoverished country with an already hostile and threatening environment for LGBT people. The advocacy group Sexual Minorities Uganda reports a tenfold increase in homophobic violence since the anti-homosexuality law passed in Parliament seven months ago, including evictions, assaults, kidnappings, extortion, mob violence, and even murders. Neo-Nazi skinheads bent on violence attempted to enter a gay night spot this week in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, soon after Mayor Vitaly Klitschko canceled a planned pride parade because he said he couldn't guarantee the safety of its participants. Violence has marred recent attempts to celebrate pride in the country's largest city. A group of about 20 neo-Nazis tried to force their way into the Pomada Club on the evening of July 7th. 
Security camera footage outside the bar obtained by the UK Pink News website appears to show the club's bouncer single-handedly pushing the thugs out of the narrow entrance and back onto the sidewalk, where they quickly dispersed. According to the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the attackers did manage to throw a smoke bomb and a few firecrackers into the club. In other news, another U.S. state ban on civil marriage for lesbian and gay couples was struck down this week, this time in Colorado. Adams County District Court Judge C. Scott Crabtree echoed similar rulings around the country, writing that denying civil marriage to same-gender couples violates due process and equal protection guarantees under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. During arguments last month, lawyers from Republican Attorney General John Souther's office argued that the ban protects the nature of marriage and furthers procreation and that the dozens of state and federal judges that have struck down similar bans elsewhere were wrong. They all got it wrong, Crabtree sarcastically asked, but the judge included a stay with his ruling pending probable appeal, so it didn't prompt any rushes to the altar. But Colorado's Attorney General Southers has also been embroiled in a legal battle with Boulder County Clerk Hillary Hall. She's handed out more than 100 marriage licenses to same-gender couples in Boulder since the three-judge panel of the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on June 25th overturned Utah's civil marriage ban, becoming the first federal appeals court to strike down a state ban. Because that court also has jurisdiction over Colorado and five other states, And even though the Tenth Circuit ruling was immediately stayed pending appeal, Hall contends that it's binding on Colorado marriage law as well. Southers filed a lawsuit in an effort to stop Hall from issuing more licenses. But Boulder County Judge Andrew Hartman ruled late this week that Hall can continue issuing them because her actions aren't harming anyone and can be seen as civil disobedience. He did warn those couples who marry that their unions could be declared invalid if a higher court finds that Hall did not have the authority to issue the licenses. And county clerks in Denver and Pueblo joined the uprising late this week by starting to issue marriage licenses to same-gender couples in their jurisdictions. Clerks in other Colorado counties are trying to figure out what to do next. Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper has asked Southers not to appeal the pro-equality rulings, but that's unlikely. Meanwhile, officials in Utah have decided to bypass a motion to the Tenth Circuit asking the full court to reconsider the three-judge panel's ruling striking down the state's civil marriage ban and will appeal instead directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Attorneys representing Republican Governor Gary Herbert and Attorney General Sean Reyes announced that the appeal will be filed in the coming weeks, although no timetable was set. The move might hasten the final outcome for more than a thousand same-gender couples who married in Utah during a brief period in late December and early January when the original district court ruling allowed them. Those marriages, like the unions of couples who wed under similar circumstances in a few other states, remain in legal limbo pending a final resolution of the issue. A federal court in May ordered Utah to recognize the marriages in that state as legally valid, but Utah had asked for a suspension of the lower court's order while the appeals process continued. But the American Civil Liberties Union reported late this week that the Tenth Circuit rejected Utah's arguments and said there was no valid reason not to recognize those marriages. The court did give the state 10 days to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a stay. It's important to note that the high court is under no obligation to hear any appeal and there's no predetermined timeline for when the Supreme Court might announce whether or not it will hear any of the Utah cases. Indiana's Republican Governor Mike Pence ordered state agencies not to recognize the marriages of more than 50 same-gender couples who went under similar circumstances in the Hoosier state.
And Wisconsin's Republican Attorney General, J.B. Van Hollen, formally filed an appeal late this week of a June ruling by District Judge Barbara Crabb that overturned the Badger State civil marriage ban. Though Judge Crabb immediately stayed her ruling, so no lesbian and gay couples have legally married in that state. Elsewhere, Irish Prime Minister Enda Kenny announced last week that the national referendum on marriage equality would be held within the first four months of 2015. The confirmation of the government's previously announced plan comes on the heels of a record crowd at the Dublin LGBT Pride Parade in late June. A poll conducted in April found increasing support for marriage equality in heavily Roman Catholic Ireland, despite the church's vocal opposition. 67% said they planned to vote yes in the referendum. But Irish referenda have a history of unpredictable outcomes because of fluctuating turnout and powerful religious lobbying groups. As is the case in several other Western countries, support for marriage equality in Ireland is especially high among women and younger people. That's News Wrap for the week ending July 12, 2014. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap was written by Greg Gordon, recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, and produced by Steve Pride. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more News Wrap, on free podcast and Stitcher Radio On Demand at thiswayout.org or on iTunes. Also on the program this week, Pete and the Pastor pander to gay sex paranoia. And an award-winning film celebrates gay seniors' gusto. Say that again backwards. Um, The Pete and the Pastor pander to gay Uh, sex paranoia. Well, speaking of great films, one of my favorite was at Outfest this year. Well, I've seen it, but it's still coming up. It's about two brothers. You must be talking about Tiger Orange. Growing up gay in a small town can be an isolating experience. But growing up gay in a small town with a gay brother, I wonder what that's like. And so does the film Tiger Orange. Do you ever even think about that? Of course I do. He really respected you, you Respect, right. I could just fit in better. Yeah, you had the pretend girlfriends, you were on the soccer team, and there was me, the drama nerd, getting high in the prop closet. When did you know? When you first got stubble? Come on. For real. I'm not being a creeper. I idolized you. I knew you were different from the other guys. I'm Mark Strano, the writer and actor of Tiger Orange. I am Frankie Valenti, the other actor in Tiger Orange. I'm Wade Gasque, director of Tiger Orange. It's about two estranged gay brothers who basically have come together after their father has recently passed away. And one brother, the older brother, stayed at home and basically helped dad run the local hardware store in the small town, central California. Younger brother left at 18, never looked back. And now that dad has passed away, younger brother shows up on the doorstep. And it's essentially a movie about the two of them kind of hashing out old stuff. This question is for our star slash screenwriter, Mark. What was the inspiration for the film? My dad actually died when I was young in high school, and I never got to come out to him. And so I kind of imagine this scenario of two gay brothers as sort of two halves of myself, of two different paths of actually telling him uh, and him having a poor reaction, which is sort of what Frankie's character, Todd, went through. And then the Czech character, which is my character, the reaction of 
knowing but not talking about it, but still being really close. So that was the spark of that. And I also wanted to write something that was sort of a metaphor for brotherhood of the gay community and two different sides of that. Johnny, tell me about the brother you play. My character is the antithesis of um, Chet. I left home. I was the wild one, wild and crazy, and um, you know, more outgoing and really upfront with my sexuality, almost to a fault. But you know, much like Mark, I had a lot of similarities in my personal life. My father passed when I was young, didn't know I was gay, knew I was gay, but never really kind of got that proper announcement. And, um, you know, my brother is kind of the opposite of me. He stayed home, not really to care for my father, but there's just a, a lot of similarities. It was very parallel. One thing that struck me watching Tiger Orange was that Todd and Chet's sexuality doesn't seem to be a big deal to the town folk. I wanted to make that point. Another reason why I set it in Central California was that there is a real easiness there to a really rural area. There is a, a lot of acceptance. And I wanted Chet's environment actually to be pretty easy in the sense of he's got support there. But sometimes people can't get out of their own head, get out of their own world. I mean, you don't see much of the father in this film, but obviously he had some issues, the father did, with both of his sons being gay. And so sometimes that could be enough to rock someone's world. And I know for myself, I come from a small town in New Jersey, though. You know, So we're talking a very liberal state, but it is a small town, and I did have a lot of acceptance. But, you know, it was tough with my dad. And like I said, I wonder where he would have taken it if I had come out to him or not. Even just the small conversations that we had, I knew he had issues with that. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. You could be surrounded by a lot of open people, but you may still have your own internal struggles about it. And that's something that Mark and I talked about a lot, actually, yeah. because... I feel like I've seen that story a lot of, you know, the not able to come out and just this community around you that's very hostile. Not that that doesn't exist in America still, absolutely, but I feel like we're kind of at this place where we're beyond that a little bit. And I think more common now is where we are is this kind of unspoken policy with a lot of like Chet's character in a small town like this where it's He's gay, yeah, people kind of know, but you don't talk about it that much, you know. You don't flash it out there. You don't throw your pride parade out on the street. You just try to blend in, and every and if, as long as you don't rock the boat, you're cool, you know. And I feel like that's very much where we are, sort of, in, in terms of yeah. our movement. I, I felt like it, it made the film more modern, if we were honest with that idea. This is for Frankie, and slightly off topic. Before Tiger Orange, you were a gay vampire on a show called The Lair, but you're best known for adult films under the stage name Johnny Hazard. How did you get into porn, and why did you leave? I got into porn just pretty much the exact way that this film happened. It just fell on my lap. And I left because the industry just, the money was crap. You know, media in general has changed. There's just not a lot of money in a lot of different things. I mean, I'd like to say that I left because, you know, of this or that, but it was just, it was a business thing. Money just sucked. What's the biggest misconception about you? That I am this, like, hardcore, spit-in-your-face, kick-your-ass kind of guy. It's not entirely false. 
And what do you do now? You're an actor full time, or do you do food? No, I, this is the only thing I've done. That and, and the lair. This is the, the only acting things that I've done. I'm living in Provincetown right now as a tour guide. And uh, once I get back here in the fall, I'm going to see how this gets played out. I'm going to see what the response has been. I'm going to see how this is going to unfold. And then from there, I'll figure out what happens next. What do you guys want the audience to take away from Tiger Orange? I hope it touches them. It's ultimately a story about family, about brothers. And that's very relatable to me, sort of the stuff we put up with, the stuff that we go through that only our sibling kind of gets or understands that the, the way that we are with our siblings. And also, for me, it was very much the story of these two components of being gay, of, of this idea of wanting to fit in and be a part of a larger community and not have to defend ourselves or prove anything, but just be a part of something larger and not have to be gay, be the first thing that we are, or gay not have to define us. And then this other part of us that is loud and proud and wants to put it out there and is not afraid of showing everything. So I feel like that is something that as a gay person, we all kind of have. And it's always this little bit of a a dance, a negotiation that we all go through. So the brothers very much represent two ends of that spectrum to me. So hopefully it lands I hope that they just enjoy it, that they're entertained. I hope that they have fun with it. I think, you know, there's a lot of fun moments as well. And I want them to, you know, identify with their families. I hope they see things in there that are similar to their family, gay or straight. There really isn't a movie out there that kind of showcases the relationship between two gay brothers. And I want people to go, oh, I've never really seen anything like that and also say, wow, it was done really well. This has been a conversation with Wade Gasqui, Mark Stranow, and Frankie Valenti. Find more information about the film at TigerOrangeMovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Then our little dog cabin in the land. Tiger Orange screens at Outfest this Friday night at the Ford Amphitheater. Steve, have you seen every single Outfest film? I have not seen them all. I've seen a lot of them. Because I feel an amazing like festival. Yeah, I feel like you've seen every single one. If I ask you, have you seen that? What do you think? Well, you I, I, I start it. with Frameline, so and a lot of the same films I, I saw a couple months ago or a month ago. Mm-hmm. All right. So. And now that we're so mainstream, there are a lot of gay films at the Los Angeles Film Festival, which just closed right before Outfest. But you are the man to ask about these things. Why? Why? Why do you want to know? Well, because I just want to know who to ask, and it's clearly you. But anyway, if you are looking for an Outfest film with a few more ladies on board... And isn't everyone? Yes. <laughs> um, we've got some wonderful guests in studio to talk about another film. And what film is that? Crazy Bitches. What? Crazy Bitches. No, we're not are we, to are talk we allowed about to the, say... We're not talking about the board here. We're talking about a film. <laughs> films tonight. <laughs> Anyway, we're joined in studio by director, screenwriter Jane Clark, and one of the bitches, I mean, stars of the film, <laughs> Kathy DeBuono. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to let that pass. <laughs> well, let's start with Jane. What's the film about? Well, the log line is seven women and one fabulous gay guy go to a remote ranch for some R&R, but things go horribly wrong when one by one they're killed off by their own vanity. Well, that sucks. <laughs> 
I don't know. I thought it was really fun. <laughs> is this based on a true story? What was the inspiration? <laughs> what happened to you? Well, you know, in a strange way, it, it, it is based on a true story. Only in that I went to lunch with a friend of mine one day, and someone I really cared about and who loves me, and she said something that was very hurtful to me, but it wasn't meant for me. She was trying to build her herself up, trying to build her her sense of self up, and I didn't say anything to her. But I remember thinking, "What the heck did you just say?" That was hurtful. And then I started thinking about how women have a tendency to build themselves up at the expense of their friends. And and there's a lot of uh, thoughtless words that are exchanged between women a lot of times and women who really care about each other. That was the genesis. And then I just, uh, I don't know why I thought I should kill them, but I... (laughs) Because it was fun? It was fun. It was so... I I, I don't... I've never made a horror movie before. And for... This was... Uh, really eye-opening to me because actually planning each murder, executing each murder, and then adding the blood later was so much fun. I felt like maybe I had some like really deep something <laughs> I had to work out of me, you know? It was scary, actually. You have an amazing <laughs> cast in this film. A lot of people, our listeners will know about. How did that work out as far as casting? We have a film named Crazy Bitches. You go to an actress like, I've got a film named Crazy Bitches. I think you'd be perfect for... <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually wrote Kathy's role for her. And we're talking about Kathy De... How do you say your last name, Kathy? DeBono. 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 Kind of like Sonny Bono <laughs> with a de. But isn't Bono. there a de bois? There is a de bois, okay. but I leave it out because it usually screws people up. Oh, so right. you can say DeBono, and I accept this. Or you can say it with the Italian little flair in there, which is de buono. De well, buono. tell me about your character. <laughs> He's like, let's skip that and get on to the movie. <laughs> yeah. um, I play a character named Cassie. That's As Jane told you, she wrote the part for me. So Cassie is a volleyball coach, used to be a volleyball player when they were all in college together. That was, of course, my own personal history thrown in there, too. And um, Cassie is a lesbian character in this group of, of college friends. And um, she she's strong. She's physical. She's an athlete. And she has a big old crush on one of her friends. And there's, you know, you know how these horror movies go. There's lots of sexual follies that happen. And, to, to and you the, get punishment, Sexual right? follies. That yeah, sounds... sexual follies. And then you have to die because of them. And your character has game. She's got game, as they say. Well, yes. You know, Jane did write it for me, so. That was a joke, guys. Everybody got really quiet. I was like, I'm just kidding. Doesn't say the I was laughing inside. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, be funny, and I'll laugh. What was it like filming this? It was so fun to film this. Jane and I are also good friends as well as colleagues. So to film this with Jane and uh, also John McLaughlin, who's an actor in the film and also a producer on the film, and then the beautiful, amazing cast of just human beings that Jane chose to do this film together up at this beautiful location, this, this Great Spirits Ranch up in Malibu, which was this beautiful, magical place, to just all be together there doing something so fun was really healing for me, actually. You know, I was having a rough year last year. We don't need to get into all that. But this was a really healing event in my life to get to go do this. It also had um, two of my favorites, uh, Gwen Turner, who had emailed tonight to be here, but she's doing something more important. Apparently, she has a working job, paying gig. (laughs) And Candace Kane, who is absolutely stunning to me. Yeah, beautiful. She's gorgeous. Candace was in my first film, Meth Head. And in that film, she plays a transgendered woman but we don't talk about it in the movie. I just assumed when I wrote it that people would, I would hire somebody and people would just know. And one of the fallacies that was became, because 
when I would go to Q&As at film festivals, people would be like, why is this beautiful woman in this house with these meth heads? What is going on with that? And I was like, well, you see, she's transgendered and they accept her as she is. And it's a, it, she's found her home with these people. And she's like, they're, they're like, what? <laughs> like, people have no idea. She is so beautiful. She's so gorgeous. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I am working on yeah. another project with her and Kathy and a couple of people. And, you know, when you find good actors, you just want to keep going with them. Unless it's you because you just killed them off during the movie. I know, but, but but we're planning zombie crazy. A sequel? <laughs> yes. How, how has this film been received so far? Well, we've only had one screening. Mm-hmm. We went to Frameline. But the screening of Frameline was really super fun. I was super nervous. And none of the actors had seen it. So that that's always an extra pressure. But right from the beginning, and I won't give it away, but right from the beginning, the laughter started, then a murder happened, then people cheered at the end of the murder. And you could hear the the engagement through the whole thing. Every murder, people cheered and got involved. There were gasps, a couple jumps and screams. It was fun. And lots and lots of laughter. I mean, I was really happy that all the places I was hoping people would think were funny because you don't know when they you're writing it. They actually are funny. Yeah, they yeah. laugh on cue. Yeah. Exactly. And, and just as a testament to Jane, I just want to throw in for you, yeah. Jane, the characters that she created, it is a fun, funny movie, and it is a slasher flick, and you know there is all that. But there are layers to these characters that we did get to f- see does that communicate to an audience, and we did at Frameline, because I was really tuned in to see how they'd respond to things. And certain character developments, just at certain subtle levels for each character, they would you could feel them respond and take that ride yeah. with that person. Well, we have to take a really quick break. We're going to be back in a minute with both of our guests. Talking about crazy bitches, and Fred Carger stops by to talk about the documentary Fred. So don't go away. We will be right back. Hello, my name is Frankie Valenti from Tiger Orange. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine every Monday night from 7 to 8 p.m. on KPFK. 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, or streaming online at kpfk.org. What's new on Sojourner Truth? We're proud to welcome author, actress, poet, and filmmaker S. Pearl Sharp. She hosts and produces our brand new feature, Sojourner Goes to the Movies. So, if you want to know the latest on what's not in the news about movies, listen up for our new feature where S. Pearl Sharp and her guests give you the lowdown on some of the most interesting, thought-provoking documentaries and movies to hit the big and small screen. That's Sojourner Goes to the Movies. For more information, go to www.sotrueradio.org. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. That's the story of my camp counselor and how I lost my innocence. Steve, 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 what? We're Steve, we're live. We're back. We're back. Okay. <laughs> we're back. I'm Steve Pryor from the IMRU. The time is now 7 27 and 32 seconds. I'm Abby Dees. That's Steve Pryor. Yeah. And we're talking with the crazy bitches about crazy bitches. Now we're talking with director, screenwriter Jane Clark and one of the stars of the film, Kathy DeBuono. DeBuono, we got it. That's right. Well done. So I'm actually wondering, is, you know, I'm thinking way back in the day, it seemed like every so-called lesbian film or LGBT film had was a coming out story. It took itself very seriously. And I wonder, 
if this sort of shows that we're changing, that we're demanding more, that we're having starting to have some fun by doing things like a slasher flick and killing off our characters and things like that. I mean, is that your experience? Well, I, uh, I do think that by necessity things change. I think that, um, you know, with the, with the success of gay marriage and the mainstreaming of gay characters in television these days, I think the television is actually turning back around to film and influencing film and allowing filmmakers to feel the freedom because they can then say, I can sell this. You know, part of the problem is that when you're when you're making uh, an LGBT film, many times you're only going to be able to sell it to the LGBT audience. So you're going to have to make it for very little money with a very small cast. There's a lot of limitations that I think also cause people to turn back into these smaller stories. Um, I also think that filmmaking is just changing. What you can do for very little money is uh, has really influenced the idea that you could make a bigger film. You know, I mean, Crazy Bitches has a, a, a lot of stuff going on and a huge cast, and we made it for very little money. So I think that that's going to be, I think it's important too. I mean, haven't those coming out stories been done a lot? Yeah. Is there anything new to say? I mean, that's really the question. Is there anything new to yeah. say? And if there isn't anything new to say, find what is new to say, you know? What's really exciting to me about the films that I've seen at Frameline and at Outfest is that they're appropriate for a gay festival. They're appropriate for a non-gay festival. They're, we've gone from where it used to be, let's make a gay or lesbian film to the place where let's make a crossover film. And now it's just, let's make a film. Because like my life, not all my friends are gay. Not all my friends are lesbian. It's just, my community has evolved. And right, film right. has evolved. Yeah, we're not required to do that. It's that we want to do that. I mean, it was like 10 years ago, I interviewed Paul Colickman from Here TV, and he's also with Regent Entertainment. And at that point, he was still making two versions of the same film. He'd make a film about a submarine commander who was pining for his lost male lover, then films additional scenes with a girl. So he could release it overseas mm-hmm. to a different oh market. Right, and he and probably made his money he that did, way. He made his money with the other yeah. film. But you don't have to do that anymore. Right, right. Well, the world, you know, if we look back at when, um, I, we can always look at the evolution of the minority demographics when we look at, we'll say, black history, African-American history in uh, film and TV. They first, those characters all first started the way our characters started, very stereotypical types of characters until finally, you know, people making TV shows and film realized the world should reflect the world, which is now there's just African-American characters everywhere. We don't think about it anymore. You know, they're just humans in the world. And that's where gay characters are going as well. But I really think that it actually comes down to the people that are making the films, because, um, you know, the representation of, of black characters or any minority on film usually is driven by somebody who is that minority that feels strongly that the, the, their voice needs to be heard. And I think that that's what is you see happening, Steve, what you're talking about at Outfest and Frameline is that that LGBT filmmakers are no longer they want to be heard in a different way. They right. want to break out of the box and, and yeah. experiment and try different genres and tell different stories yeah. because there's a bigger world. Our lives world. Are, are full. We don't yeah. just come out and then that's the end of our life. I mean, our lives are, are very full with with all kinds of other stories to tell. And this is a new generation of lesbian and gay filmmakers. This is a new group. The old group has moved on to Donna Deesh, for instance, and Jamie Babbitt have moved on to doing procedural shows mm-hmm. on TV like CSI or Law and Order. So we've got a new group. They've grown up differently than the last group. Exactly. Their world yeah, is point. very skewed in a different way. Mm-hmm. What do you want the audience to take away from the film? A smile. 
<laughs> I really want people to just go let it all hang out, have a really good time, laugh their butts off, and walk out with a smile. And I want them to go to the next person and say, you got to go see this movie. It is so fun. <laughs> did you? Did you? Did I hear you right? Did you intimate that there was already a sequel in the works? Or a follow-on Well, we have, we have been joking around that we need to do Crazy Bitches the Zombie Movie or Zombie Crazy Bitches or something like that. We had to bring the girls back. Crazy I, Zombie I, Bitches. I'm also working on a, a film with Candace Kane to star um, that's another horror comedy, not based on Crazy Bitches, but based on Candace saying, hey, do you want to make a film with me? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, killing off so many of the characters in Crazy Bitches really will make salary negotiations for the sequel much easier. <laughs> yeah, I think As so they will need to be zombies, apparently. Right. <laughs> or maybe I'll go back to the two-person dra- two drama, you know <laughs> Or a prequel. Or a prequel. Oh, there you go. That's how they all Before they were crazy. Before yeah. we run out of time, and I don't mean to change the subject, but I have to ask Kathy a off-topic question because I read in your bio that you're not only an actress, you're a therapist and an empath. That's right. Like Deanna Troa in Star Trek. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you know, you kind of look like her. She was playing me, actually. No. Was, oh, okay. Even though I was a kid then. But. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they wrote that role for you, you much like Jane's did, and right. they just couldn't afford your, your quote. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I had to walk away from Star Trek. It was a bad decision. So anyway, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? An empath is a, is a type of psychic that works with, um, and I just learned the difference from a medium friend of mine. I work with living energy. I work with live energy. And um, I'm not in that frame of mind at the moment, but uh, as, a, as a psychotherapist, I also incorporate um, the use of, of empathic skills, which is I will take on a feeling in my body or my emotional self, or sometimes I'll see an aura, or um, uh, there's other ways I can pick up information. Well, you're probably feeling this right now. We are out of time. <laughs> <laughs> you, you saw that coming. I know you did. I did. I also feel like there's a movie in that somewhere. There is. <laughs> Our thanks to uh, Jane Clark and Kathy Dubono for stopping by to talk about Crazy Bitches, which screens at Althus this Thursday night at 8.30 in the Ford Amphitheater. Now, that's a fun venue. I love um, that place. It's so great. Yeah. And one of our favorite guests is a Republican, and yes, that seems contrary to everything KPFK is. Um, and I thought we were finished talking about Crazy Bitches. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Mm. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. We are, we are really kind of freestyling this one, I think. I we are know. completely. But anyway, the first Republican in 2012 to throw in his hat into the ring uh, for he the presidential honestly, nomination. the only friend I have that ran for president last time. He's the only friend. I, well, That's I, hard he's to not believe. a friend of mine That's yet, but I hope weird, he will yeah. be. Um, but anyway, Fred Carger is here to talk to us about a new film about that run and various other things he's doing. Got a very special interview today with Fred Carger, who's done a lot of campaign work for former Republican presidents, but's here today with a very special announcement, Fred. <laughs> What's the news? I just left the Federal Election Commission office at uh, 999E, and I submitted my paperwork. I filed to run for president of the United States. You would be the first openly gay president of the United States. Why do you think that's important? I've dedicated today to the six younger people, teenagers who committed suicide last fall, joining thousands of others who've done that because they've been bullied for being different. And I want to talk about that. The fact that I can have um, a 
be able to discuss, you know, this this is a first. I would be the first openly gay candidate mm -hmm. I am now to to ever run for president of a major political party. Mm -hmm. And it opens the door. It's it's uh, something that Shirley Chisholm did in 1972 as the first African American to run for president, and and opened the door for Jesse Jackson and President Obama. And I want to do that for my community. back with Fred Carger, the 2012 presidential nominee. Well, you were uh, you were not the nominee, I'm sad to say, but you a candidate really, for you the are nomination, a candidate and yeah. a Republican candidate, no less. And you are, I know right now, you are promoting your movie about that campaign. But before we get to the movie, I just want to ask you again, why did you do it? Well, it was a I'd like to say a perfect storm. I had about 13 things on my checklist, and they all kind of came to pass, including President Obama not being very good at that point on LGBT issues. And so I was determined to be a voice of, a, of my community and also to try and shake up the Republican Party a little bit, because it used to be the Progressive Party. It was, of course, the party of Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt and many other progressives when the Democratic Party wasn't. And it's it's gone, you know, afoul. So I wanted to bring back that kind of moderate Republican voice, and also be the first openly gay candidate of either party, and to do it as a Republican. I mean, it, it was very clear from watching the film that you weren't doing a, oh yeah, let's not talk about me being gay. That's just part of who I am. I, it's, it's about this stuff. You were very clear that you were paving a way that that this was going to be a big issue. And, I mean, is that true? Did you were you kind of knowing that you were pushing against that structure by being very out? Absolutely. And it was a big personal hurdle for me because I had always been in the closet for my career yeah. in politics. And so to come out as I did about just eight years ago was a big uh, jump. And then also to do it in, in such a public way and to go to all these Republican meetings. I appeared uh, in New Hampshire and Iowa with every other candidate multiple times, Romney, Santorum, I'd always be on the same program. I was treated very well, but I would do what I call drop the gay bomb. And I would say <laughs> I'm the first to run commercials, the first tire staff, the first openly gay candidate. And all of a sudden, the, the look around the room was pretty intriguing because people's expression would freeze because they didn't want to react. But then afterwards, a lot of people would come up to me thanking me, telling me stories about their uncle or their son. And it was a great source of inspiration because I, I felt like I should have been a, a therapist before I undertook that job. Well, I want to ask about before you undertook that job because here at KPFQ, because we have a lot of former presidential candidates we who do. come I mean, in, yeah. but some more day. legitimate than the others. I mean, Roseanne Barr had a show here. Mm -hmm. She ran for president of the Green Party. I don't think she got the nomination, but Fred Carter had some real credentials going into yes. this. It wasn't just like someone saying, I've got a tinfoil hat and I want to be president. It was you had a background in politics. So tell us about that. It was interesting because I had never run for political office in my life. So at, at 60 years old, I started this journey to run for the highest office in the land. But I'd worked in politics since I was a teenager, and I did it professionally for 30 years and worked on 10 presidential campaigns. So while I'd never served in government, in state or federal government or local government, I'd always been very close to it. So I knew how the politics worked, and I also knew how the office worked. And I had worked for Reagan as he was running for president the first time, and this guy lit a fire under the country and got along with people, 
worked with the Democratic Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill. They became friends and got things done. So that was one of my overriding themes. And of course, that has really left politics now. So something I wanted to emphasize as someone who supports a lot of Democrats, who, of course, I have to because they're big on marriage equality. The Republicans are are slowly coming around and, and Republicans. And so I thought I could be a good conciliator and I thought I could actually do a good job as president. What does it mean to you to be a Republican? What is that? What is a Republican to you? A Republican was uh, philosophy was instilled in me by my parents and they were very moderate people and very uh, understanding and caring people. And I remember dinner discussions, we would talk about that a lot. And I, at 14 years old, started working for a guy named Charles Percy, who was running for governor of my home state of Illinois. I'd ride my bike to his headquarters. He lost that race, but he won two years later for the U.S. Senate. And this is a progressive Republican who was very pro-choice and very um, pro-supportive of uh, people in need. And he he had a heart. and, And that's the Republican Party I grew up with. And so I got that training at a very early age, and I was one of these fighting moderates, and it became a very sticky situation, particularly in California and around the country. But I have kept that uh, hat on. A lot of my fellow moderate Republicans have left the party out of disgust. I I can't really blame them, but I think that in order to make the changes we're going to make, not just on LGBT civil rights, but on a whole array of issues, we need to stick with this Republican Party and try and moderate it. You know, I was very struck because early in the documentary, there is a shot of you walking into the Southern Republican Leadership Conference, you know, where Sarah Palin was there and we see Sarah (laughs) Palin talking. And I, and you know, I admired the fact, like, here he is, he's going in there, he's, he's introducing himself as a gay Republican. And I, I wondered, did you feel, how did you feel? I mean, did you feel like you're with your people or did you really feel like an outsider? And I'm sure you've had more moments like that. Well, these you know, are CPAC the... and things. Yeah, I was, I've got faced a lot of hurdles and not just from the Republican Party. I was mostly included in the Republican activities. This was a third-party group as my problems in Iowa with the Faith and Freedom Coalition and my problems in D.C. with CPAC. But this 17 southern states is, I, is, why, is where I went in New Orleans in 2010 because I wanted to make a point of going kind of into the enemy territory. And they wouldn't even let me have a press conference there. So I had to go around it and rent the press conference in someone else's name. And I had a big reception that night. And it was fun to watch a lot of people come in. I had two bartenders wearing the Fred T-shirts. And everybody was very happy to come get their free drinks. And and then people are asking me, well, you're running for president. Uh, what makes you unique? Or how can you do this? So I'd say I'm the first openly gay candidate to ever run for this office of either major party. And all of a sudden, they'd come up with this. Um, Honey, it's getting late. I think we need to get back to our room. But they take their cocktails with them. So I wanted to at least be pleasant to put a face on this gay community. I have impeccable, as I would say, Republican credentials. So it was a little harder for them to um, to take me on. But what really hurt, and this was um, uh, happened a lot more than I had expected, and I understand it, but by the LGBT community, I was shunned. I was never introduced at one HRC dinner. I was uh, promised uh, many opportunities that were canceled at the last minute. And, and that really hurt because I have been a very, a very active activist taken on our opponents of equality. So I thought I might have scored a few points. And I understand that everything bad that has ever happened has come from the Republican Party. And I was there at one of them, the NLGGA convention a few years ago, where you were not allowed to speak. It was embarrassing. 
And I was promised a speech, which I'd written, and I was there in Philadelphia for that presentation, an opening reception, and um, they had decided at the last minute that I was ineligible, that it was a legal violation, which is BS, because there is no such restriction on political candidates that uh, you're not allowed to pitch your campaign, but you're also allowed to speak. And so that was hurt. And then, of course, it repeated itself at Outfest. And that's what really got me incensed. Uh, but I did what I, I did during the campaign. I, I We had this great film. I think it was a wonderful film. We had it tour all over the country. It got rave reviews, a lot of media attention. I think it's a very important historical film for the community that will be around for hopefully many generations, but we were shunned by Outfest. And so I did what I did during the campaign, as you saw in the film. I went and rented a theater. We're going to have it at the Sundance Theater in Hollywood on Thursday night. And we're not competing necessarily with Outfest, but I want to take advantage of all the distributors and the other film festival people that are in town and, and showcase this Didn't wonderful you have your film. you in a very political lo- chosen location. Uh, the premiere of the film? In New Hampshire. Oh, in New Hampshire, yes. I was invited, uh, and, and John Fitzgerald Keitel, who has had every single documentary he's ever done going back to 1992 at Outfest, he's a wonderful film director, we were invited to be the opening film at the Monaf International Film Festival, which is, of course, a, a huge honor to be the opening film. And so we went back for that. We were also on Nine Days Later, and between that time, we went to about eight other venues, Concord High School, full student body assembly in the auditorium of high, primarily straight course high school kids. Love the film. We went to the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College, uh, University of New Hampshire. I spoke at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, which is featured in the film. They were a little skeptical of me at first, and I was in a many, many of the uh, presentation speeches there, and we ended up premiering it there. So we were treated very well. We're going to take it to Iowa and New York, and I, I just hope that this gets picked up by one of the big uh, distributors Great. and, and, and I a lot think of people see it. I forgot to mention the film is actually called Fred. That's easy to remember. We're here with Fred Carter. Um, but you're not just the former candidate for president. You are really kind of a professional thorn in the side of a few big organizations like the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and the National... Uh, why do I have a I space the name? Of, I have a National block around it. National for Organization marriage. for Marriage. Uh-huh. I just, if there's some reason that that always ejects That's my brain, I think it's just a very emotional thing. Anyway, you, tell me what you're doing to fight them. Well, I, I decided in my, as part of my process of becoming an activist, when Prop 8 reared its ugly head and qualified for the ballot, which, of course, is just now four years or uh, six years ago, I decided that we had lost 30 elections in a row on marriage all over the country and we needed to shake it up and do things differently. And we'd never really targeted our opponents, the big, big donors, to try and discourage them from contributing. So I offered myself up. A lot of people were very nervous and discouraging, but I thought we should make consequences for these donors who are giving 100000 or more. So we did a boycott in San Diego. Pride is this weekend. It's our sixth anniversary. We boycotted the Manchester Grand Hyatt, the largest hotel in San Diego, because its owner, Doug Manchester, gave $125,000 to qualify and pass Prop 8 and was gloating about it, as you would if you gave money to help the homeless or or build a hospital wing or something. And so I thought we should boycott his hotel. I combined my efforts with Unite Here, the Hotel Workers Union. We had this great alliance, Cleve Jones, and it was very effective. And they were losing a million dollars a month. We did three other boycotts of the biggest donors. And they accused me of trying to hurt their business. Well, of course I want to hurt their business. I don't think people should give money to people that are going to use it against 
themselves or or my community. And so it was hugely successful. He lost a million dollars a month. He ended up selling the hotel. It's that twin towers in San Diego, the biggest property, to Marriott, and he's now bought the newspaper, unfortunately. But it's important, and I think that people need to realize where all this money's coming from. It had never been done, and that's my job. I, I'm single-handedly doing it because a lot of the organizations can't. I understand that, but I will keep that pressure up. Um, I, I know you're also ticking on the LDS for the way they handled Prop 8 and the way they solicited donations. Where can people find more information on this? Well, we have a great website called rightsequalrights.com. Dot com, which has our Mormon gate right material. Equal rights. Rights, plural. Right. Okay. Rights, equal rights. Rights, equal rights. Dot okay. com. <laughs> Can I get you to promise to come back and talk to us again sooner than later? This. Because it's been so long. I don't, I don't think we've talked to you since the campaign. No, and I was actually, I think last time I might have been here too, was promoting the, the uh, Eight the Mormon Proposition, which was Reed Cowan's brilliant film, which was at Sundance and all well, over. Well, you've got my phone number and my email, <laughs> so the next time you have yeah. something to say, which I don't think will be and very I'd long. And I'd really like to talk about what's going on with the uh, LDS, but we just don't have time right now. Thank you, Fred Carger, uh, for coming down to the studio and talking about the documentary Fred, which opens Thursday in Los Angeles at the Sundance Five Theater on Sunset at Crescent Heights. You know where that is. Checklist listings for showtimes. Are there listings anymore? I guess you check on the web. You check on your phone. Anyway, we'll be right back with the IMU Community Calendar following this week's Rainbow Minute. On this day in history, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. July 14, 1992. Bob Hatoy becomes the first HIV-positive person to address a national political convention and reach a national audience. Politically active his entire adult life, Hatoy protested the Vietnam War, lobbied for environmental issues with the Sierra Club, was appointed to the Presidential Commission on HIV-AIDS in Bill Clinton's administration, and advocated for GLBT issues. Then, on this day in 1992, as an HIV-positive person speaking at the Democratic Convention, he admonished outgoing President Bush Sr. for failing to do anything about AIDS. Quote, I don't want to die, Hatoy said but I don't want to live in an America where the president sees me as the enemy. I can face dying because of a disease, but not because of politics. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Well, if it's not enough to see Fred this weekend or to see crazy bitches this weekend. Or Tiger Orange. Or Tiger Orange this weekend. We've got some more things on our gay agenda for our calendar girls. Well, our calendar girls are Wendell Jones <laughs> and Miss Barbecue. Hey. And it hey. is your IMRU calendar for the week of July 14th, 2014. It's Bastille Day, That's so right. feel free to take oh to my. the streets and rise in joyous insurrection against the entrenched aristocracy. But when you're finished, then <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> I don't we know. have a few ideas, and to make it easier, we have posted all of the information you'll need on the IMRU Facebook page, so you'll only have to remember one thing. <laughs> on Saturday, Sky Pilot Theater Company is opening a workshop production of Keith Haring, Pieces of a Life. At the studio stage on Western, Keith Haring was out, proud, and 
setting the artistic standard during the 1980s. You guys remember him. Oh, yeah. The show is going to be picked up in August and moved to the NoHo Actor Studio, so be sure to catch it at one of those venues. It is a truth universally acknowledged. There is nobody more entertaining than legend in his own mind, Jason Graw. Anybody who's seen him live can attest to this. If you haven't, though, this is your big chance. One night only, Wednesday the 16th, he'll be pre presenting an evening of self-indulgence oh, like at that charming little bot Rockwell, just north of Hollywood Boulevard on Vermont. And nobody knows self-indulgence like Jason. The magical <laughs> fingers of Gerald Sternbach will be handling the keyboard duties. Next up, buyer and seller running through August 17th at the Mark Taper Forum. It, in it is Michael Yuri. Remember him from Ugly Betty? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It explores the comic possibilities to be found when an unemployed actor finds himself the sole employee, tending to the sole customer when he's hired to work in a shopping mall in Barbara Streisand's basement. Oh my God! I know it's a long, it's a long <laughs> sentence, which apparently is wow. a real thing. There's I, so much love, you might have to go see it twice. I saw it on, I saw it on Saturday. Did and you? It was hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah, I and mean, we may have him on. Is that the? Is Yay! That the well, oh, we're, I love to meet Michael we're Yuri. On it. Now the next event isn't until next Monday night, but if I wait until then to let you know, you'll never get in because it's not only highly popular but requires reservations. Yes. It's miscast. Right, sing a wrong song and exercise in gender fluidity as talented collection of performers get to sing the songs they would never get to do in. An actual show. That sounds good. It is. The lineup is extensive, but those familiar with LA theater will surely recognize the names Will Collier and Yuan Chung, both of whom are a treat to both the ear and the eye. This is happening at the approachably sophisticated Sterling's Upstairs of the Federal in the ever hotter North Hollywood Arts District. And best of all, proceeds from this particular show will benefit Project Angel Food. Oh, that's wonderful. And on Friday the 18th is a stage reading of the Paul Rudnick comedy, Jeffrey. Remember Jeffrey? Oh, taking, yes. place, taking place at the West Hollywood Council Chambers. Believe it or not, this is this is to celebrate 50 years of queer theater and is being produced by our very own Celebration Theater and the city of West Hollywood. And that's all I know about that. So we got big theater, small theater, cabaret, musical review. It's an embarrassment of riches. Yes. It's a high We're, culture kind of way. Yeah, it's a lot of culture there. We're I mean, culture. The house. Like there are no naked the boys this in this week's No, week's not at all. But okay. remember, every lurid detail about all of these events has been posted on the IMRU Facebook page. Give us a look, and while you're there, give us a like, would you? Please. I'm Wenzel Jones. I'm Miss Barbecue. Reporting from the Cultural Trenches. That's right. We return you now to the erudition and verve of our hosts. Uh, <laughs> they verve. Talk, verve. They talk verve. so pretty. They're real pretty. <laughs> Pretty. <laughs> well, that's pretty. the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage, take Tim Politico's by the hand, and exit to the far left, always the far left Sorry, here, Fred. of the trans <laughs> forward motion. <laughs> Fred actually moves his chair when we said left. Yeah, I saw <laughs> to the right, yeah. Mm. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. If you have comments or story suggestions, tweet us at Facebook. On face or follow us on Facebook. Tweet us on Facebook. No, that doesn't work. That's how the interweb works. Isn't I it? don't understand. You sound like my mom now. I know. Or you can yeah. contact us directly the old school way via email at imruradio at imruradio.org. Coming up next, flip the script with Riku Matsuda. You know, a documentary about Canadian singer-songwriter Ray Spoon screened at Red Cat as part of Outfest last night. And I was lucky enough to interview them, interview them last well, yesterday. Yesterday. <laughs> them? Them? Them, yeah. Well, Ray has retired from gender. Oh. And oh, their oh, personal okay. pronoun is them. 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 I like yeah. it. I like it. I, I it's easier like to remember it. than um, he or some she. of the others. You know, I yeah. think um, Justin Vivian Bond uses V, which can be hard to use in the sentence. I like them because we're already using it anyway, so yeah. we might as well just well, keep We're going to close with Ray Spoon's There is a Light, But It's Not For You right now. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.
Let's all go to Montreal and stand outside Leonard Cohen's house. If we stand there long enough, Leonard will turn on a light. Leonard, turn on a light. Leonard, turn on a light. There is a light. It's not for everyone. Let's all go to Manchester.